All right, Luke chapter 22. I'm going to jump right into it. I got 100 pounds to fit in a 50-pound sack, so uh, let's go. Um, We left off with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's with his disciples, and the prayer has been on prayer and preparation. Jesus himself is praying and preparing himself for the cross, and his exhortation to the disciples is that they should be praying and getting prepared for a great trial that they're going to face. Satan had asked for them to sift them as wheat, and so really the focus is on prayer and preparation. And all this takes place in a garden. Uh, And it's interesting when you think about it because mankind began in a garden. Uh, There in the garden, God blessed man and he provided for his every need. Genesis chapter 2, put on the screen for you. It says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that garden, not only did God place man there, not only did God bless and provide for man there, but in the creation of man, there in the garden, God gave to man free will. The Bible says that man is created in the image of God. And one of the ways that we are created in the image of God is that God has given to us a sovereign will, just as he has a sovereign will. Uh, See, when God created you, he didn't make a robot out of you. He desired a love relationship with you. And for there to be a true loving relationship, you've got to have a choice in the matter. You can't just be forced to be there or be programmed to be there engaged in that relationship. So God created you with a free will. You can choose to receive him, you can choose to obey him, or you can choose to reject him. And of course, we know that Adam made the wrong choice, right? Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and sin then poisoned them and the entire human race. And this kicked off a string of events biblically that reveals God's plan of redemption for mankind. And we see this plan of redemption played out there in the garden. Adam and Eve, now in their sinful state, recognizing their own nakedness, uh, they uh, there are, are, are painfully aware that they're naked, and God provides, covers them, covers their nakedness. How does he do it? He, he uh, sheds innocent blood. Uh, he, he then, you know, sacrifices animals, providing the skins as, as clothing for Adam and Eve. And therein, we have, in the Bible, the very first picture of God's plan of redemption for mankind. The shedding of innocent blood to cover man's sin. And again, all of this takes place in a garden, symbolizing the far greater sacrifice, the covering of our sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That phrase, to be the offering for our sins. Uh, Some of your Bibles read, uh, God made him uh, who knew no sin to become sin for us. And that's literally what took place, is that Jesus Christ became sin for us. He took our sin upon ourselves, and he went to the cross, and he suffered the wrath of God that is rightly and justly poured out on sin, But God, wanting to save sinners, took the wrath upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us because we are sinners by nature and by choice. 
And the hope is that we would become, we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so mankind began in a garden, mankind fell in a garden, and mankind is now redeemed in a garden. As Jesus now, here in the garden of Gethsemane, he, praying to the, to, to the Father, hey, if, it, if, it, if there's any other way we can redeem these guys, take, take this cup of wrath from me, but nevertheless, not your will be, or not my will be done, but your will be done. That's, sorry, I've confused my prayer with Jesus' prayer because I often say, I want my will done, Lord. But he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And so Jesus there in the garden, he takes the cup of wrath upon himself. But not everybody here in the Garden of Gethsemane received the redemption that was available to all. What we're going to see today as the story unfolds, we're going to see three categories of sinners represented here in the garden. We're going to see one who received redemption, and we're going to see many others who didn't. Specifically today, we're going to look at Judas, who betrayed Jesus. We're going to look at the religious leaders who rejected Jesus. We're going to spend a lot less time on them because I'm going to cover them in great deal next week. And we're going to look at Peter, who denied Jesus. So let's pick it up. Let's look. Um, We're going to back up, by the way, because we covered these verses last week, but there is so much there that we didn't even touch on. So we're going to get into that today. We're going to pick it up in verse 47, Luke chapter uh, 22. Let's read it there. Yep, I'm there. I'm looking. I'm like, where is this? This doesn't look like it. All right, Luke chapter 22, verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking. It's talking about Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. Remember, he told them, hey, you need to watch and you need to pray lest you enter into temptation. And so, basically, he kept coming back, finding them asleep. And uh, he's like, guys, you're asleep at the switch, man. You got to be praying lest you enter into temptation. So this happens three times. Three times he's exhorting to them. And so here he's speaking to them with that rebuke. Wake up, get praying. You're going to be ground to a pulp, man. Satan wants to crush you, sift you like wheat. Behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them. So Judas is leading the pack. He's leading this multitude. Uh, and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, we saw a few weeks ago um, really the motive, that, it, that the preponderance of the evidence really just makes abundantly clear, the motive of Judas's heart. Why was it that Judas betrayed the Lord? Why was it that Judas turned against him. And basically, the preponderance of the evidence is this, that uh, Judas was following Jesus for personal gain. He was following him for personal gain. He was hoping for for a position within, you know, the new government that he hoped that Jesus would form. He was hoping for power within that government. He was looking for a payday, you know, hey, listen, there's, there's something to be got here. And so, this was his whole motive, This is why he was in it. This is why he was following Jesus. It was all for personal gain. But when it became apparent that Judas's plan was not God's plan, that's when Judas tapped out. That's when Judas said, no, I'm out of here. I'm going to cash out. I'm going to get what I can. Sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And here now, he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now I want to dig into two points of application here uh, for us. We're going to spend some time on this. We're going to look at belief and we're going to look at betrayal. Belief and betrayal. Now let's start with belief. Um, 
Belief is at the heart of Judas's problem here. Here's why. Uh, what you believe inevitably, or inevitably, right? It, it, it will, it, it, there is no question about it. In, in, it inevitably leads to your behavior. What you believe results in how you behave, okay? And so Judas's betrayal It's a warning to us to examine what we believe about Jesus Christ, okay? Because again, for Judas, hey, he was all about, hey, here's my ticket to power, position, and paycheck. And so so there was an ulterior motive in his following Christ. He saw Jesus as a means to an end, and the end was his empire, right? And so, so we need to answer the question, is that really the Jesus that I follow? If I can put it this way, there, there's really, you know, there, there's one of two Jesuses that we can follow. We could follow Jesus, who is the Son of God, who's the Lord of our life, who, who we desperately cry out to as our Savior and as our Lord. We surrender to his Lordship in our life, and we, we acknowledge that we are sinners by nature and by choice and that we are deserving of the wrath of God, but we recognize that Jesus took the wrath of God that we rightly deserve that should have fallen upon us, that Jesus took it upon himself. We acknowledge that and we worship him for that. In truth, that's what we are doing in practice in part when we partake of communion on, on, on Sunday morning. We, we are acknowledging that the wrath of God is poured out upon sinners and that Jesus took the wrath that we deserve upon himself. Now, that's, that's the, the, the Jesus of the Bible. But there are many who Jesus to them is a means to an end, and the end is them. The end is their selfish desires. Genie becomes, or Jesus becomes the genie in the bottle. Right? And, and he's the, the three wishes grantor. He's the one that's going to be a welcome addition to my kingdom. And so we have to figure this out. Now, let me unpack this a little bit further. About 20 years ago, there, there was a study that a couple of sociologists did. And I've told you about this before. If you've heard this, uh, just listen because it's, it's very instructive here for today. So these two sociologists got together, they put this study together, and part of their study, really the central part of their study, was that they interviewed uh, 3,000 self-identified Christian teenagers. And what they wanted to know is, what do these guys believe about God? They say they're Christians, so what does that mean to you? And so, so they interviewed these guys. And now, just so that I have you with me, because you're thinking, teenager, what's that got to do with me? Well, this was, this was back, you know, in, at the, the beginning of this century. So, so we're talking, these folks are in their 30s right now, okay? Um, these, these folks are, are key members of the body of Christ right now, okay? Of the church right now. I, I use that term lightly, because... Basically, we, you know, they, have a, they self-identify as Christians, and so these sociologists wanted to figure out, well, what's that mean to you? When you read your Bible, what is the grid that you see Jesus through? And so they came up with identifying what their belief system was based on their answers, and they termed their belief system as moral therapeutic deism. Now, now there were five basic tenets to their faith. They said, look, we believe in Jesus. Okay, what's that mean to you? It basically meant five things. Number one, they believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. 
That's biblical. Number two, they believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. That's also biblical. That's good. Here's where it starts to go south. Number three, the central goal of life, they assert, is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Now, let me just say, okay, yeah, you, you want to be happy, you want to feel good about yourself. Um, that's not necessarily unbiblical, but it is not the central goal of life, right? Because if, if the central goal of life is being happy and feeling good about yourself, then how do you reconcile the fact that you are a sinner by nature and by choice? How do you reconcile the fact that, that you, all of us, have things in our lives that we need to mourn over, that we need to repent of. We have things in our life that we should not be happy with, right? And so, so that is not, not, that's not biblical Christianity. Number four, the fourth tenet of their belief. They believe that God doesn't need to be involved in our life except when he's needed to fix a problem. This is the don't call us, we'll call you kind of faith, right? They just say, hey, you know, I... I Jeannie Butler, I'll call you when I need you. Number five, they believe that good people go to heaven when they die, which is, which is fine, except for the Bible says there's no good people. <laughs> there's none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so they got a big problem, okay? So moral therapeutic deism then is the controlling belief system of quite a number of people who are in churches today. Now, let's break that title down, Moral Therapeutic Deism. The reason they gave it that title um, is that, first of all, their belief system is moral um, because it takes a moralistic approach to life. Be good, be fair, be nice. Secondly, their belief system is therapeutic in the sense that it provides these people with, um, with benefits, with benefits to, to, to the grid that they see life through. Here's their benefit. Um, instead of having personal responsibility to things like repentance from sin or living as a servant of God or building character through suffering, all biblical principles, well, no, their belief system says, no, God's a, a genie in the, bio, in, in the bottle for me. And so I don't, I, I, it's, I don't have to you know, focus on repentance of sin or, or living as a servant of God or building character through suffering because it's just all about being happy and feeling good about myself and God is there to make me happy and to feel good about myself. So it's moralistic, it's therapeutic, and finally, their belief system is deistic. Now, in classic deism, this is a, this is a, a deism is a school of thought. Uh, it's an interpretation of, of who God is and how he operates. And it goes back thousands of years. And classic deism, basically, the idea is that God created everything and then he split. And now you're on your own. And so it's kind of like the Hunger Games, you know, good luck and may the odds ever be in your favor kind of thing, right? That's classic deism. Well, in moral therapeutic deism, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, the, the idea is that God created everything and split, but now he's on call. Right, and so <laughs> there's a there's a big problem with that. Right, 
here's how the author, authors summarize this belief system. They say, God is selectively available for taking care of our needs. He is something like a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise in our life. He helps his people to feel better about themselves. And here's the key. He does not become too personally involved in the process. Now, let me ask you, who's the God in that belief system? You are. If that's, if that's your grid through which you call Christianity, that's what Christianity is all about, then you, that makes you God. It just relegates God to your servant. It gets, it gets things very twisted. And so, so the issue here with Judas is that, you know, for him betraying Jesus, it was inevitable because basically he had a belief problem. He thought that Jesus was a means to an end and the end was him, right? And so for us, we have to hit the pause button there. We got to take a walk with it. We got to say, do I have a belief problem? When I call myself a Christian, what does that mean? When I read my Bible, what's the grid through which I interpret the Bible? Because if I'm, if I'm interpreting it through the grid of, hey, God just wants me to be happy, and God just wants to bless me, and God just wants to take care of me, and I really don't embrace the biblical principles of, of you know, brokenness over sin, of repentance, of, uh, of you know, the, the attitude of, you know, Jesus is Lord, which requires a surrendered life. It requires me to yield to God, to an ongoing work of sanctification in my life, which is a $20 Christian word, which simply means that God wants to make you more like Jesus. He wants to make you holy. He wants to take you through the course of your life and reveal sin in your life and, 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 and work that sin out of your life so that, so that you become more and more Christ-like as you're seeking him, as you're trusting in him. Well, our second point of application as we look at Judas here, it's betrayal. It's betrayal. Now, we read here that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and really, when you think about it, that's the perfect description of betrayal, isn't it? He betrayed him with a kiss. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you have experienced betrayal in your life? Can I see a show of hands? Yeah, right? This is a universal human experience. We've all experienced betrayal on some levels. It's been said of all human experiences, there's none so painful as the sting of betrayal. And everybody said, amen, right? We have, we have experienced that. Now, the dictionary defines betrayal this way. It says that betrayal is forsaking a sacred trust. It says that betrayal is the act of being disloyal or unfaithful to somebody who has trusted you. And that word betrayal, it's actually a Latin compound word, which means to trade thoroughly or to hand over. Somebody has traded thoroughly and handed over their relationship with you to something or someone else through the act of Betrayal, right? Now, for those of you that have been betrayed, you're like, hey, I didn't need the dictionary to tell me what betrayal is, right? I've, I know it painfully. My mom had a friend in nursing school, and uh, this friend went on to, to, you know, graduate, become a nurse, and she subsequently got married, and, and, you know, she and her husband had a couple of kids, and she was actually in the hospital. She'd just given birth to her second child, 
And uh, it, was the, it was, you know, the second or third day that she'd been in there, and she was going to be discharged. Um, her, her husband wasn't there. She asked her mom to go home to get, you know, some necessary things she needed to be able to go home to be discharged, you know, clothing or whatever. And her mom goes home, finds her husband in their bed with another woman. Now, you want to talk about betrayal. That one hurts. That one's going to leave a mark, Right? And you ladies are thinking, yeah, it's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave a nice tight pattern right on his chest, you know. You know but, but yeah, man, that, 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 you know, now we've all experienced betrayal. Maybe it hasn't been to that degree. But, man, we, we know that, that we know the sting of it, right? And whenever we are blindsided by a trial, especially a particularly painful trial like betrayal, it's comforting to know that Jesus knows our pain. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says this, says, um, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, because Jesus was betrayed by his closest, most trusted friends, he is uniquely qualified to understand and to sympathize with our betrayal. We, we read about Jesus' betrayal in Zechariah 13, and it, it, really, um, it really gives us a, a painful picture um, of, of how he felt about betrayal. It, 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 we see there it's um, a picture of a beaten and bloodied prophet, but it's really a, perfect, a prophetic picture of Jesus. Here's what Zechariah uh, 13.6 says, uh, And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. Betrayal. But I want you to see that even in Jesus' betrayal, I want you to see how he responded. And the way to describe how Jesus responded is how he didn't respond. You see, because Jesus didn't say, man, that's going to leave a mark, uh, Judas. Wait, you know, I'm going to put a tight pattern and, you know, unload this clip in your chest kind of deal. He didn't respond that way. He didn't retaliate. Here's how Jesus uh, responded. Um, you know, we, we read here uh, that there in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus exhorting his disciples, pray, you know, unless you, unless you enter into temptation, you need to prepare for this crushing. Well, verse 49 and 50, they wake up rubbing the sleep out of their eyes. The trial is upon them. They aren't acting in the spirit. They're acting in the flesh. And Jesus or uh, Peter lashes out with a sword, cuts off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus intervenes. He rebukes Peter. He heals the, the guy's you know, problem and all, and, uh, and he's rebuking Peter, and it basically says, look, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, but Matthew's gospel tells us he said something else to Peter at that point as well. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Jesus said to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Now, a, a legion was about 7,000 foot soldiers and horsemen, and so 12 legions would have been about 80,000. And, and these are angels. And you keep in mind, the Bible gives a picture of one angel putting about 185,000 soldiers to death single-handedly. So Jesus is basically saying, I could have 80 of those, you know, at a moment's notice. But he, but he said, I'm not going to do it, right? This is how it's going to go down. He, he, he says, and we read it in verse 51 last week, permit even this. Let it go. See, 
Jesus trusted himself to the Father's plan. He didn't retaliate, right? He, he was going to take what Satan intended for evil. He was going to take this absolutely betraying act of, of Judas, and he was going to trust it to the Lord to work it together for good. And listen, the Bible teaches that this is how we are to handle things that we suffer with, including the painful act of betrayal. The Bible says this how, is how we're to be. Paul told the Philippians, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, here's what Paul understood. He understood, listen carefully, Paul understood that suffering allows us, right, the the, the sufferings that God allows us to go through, like betrayal, they serve as a means for us to know Jesus Christ more fully. They serve as a means for us to know Jesus more fully. And as we do, what do we learn? We learn to hope in God and we learn to put less confidence in the things of this world. Now, I received an email this week. I wanted to share it with you. Um, this, is, uh, this is from Liz Delgado, for you ladies who know Liz and have heard her testimony. And, and she, with her blessing, uh, sent this to me, told, said me that I could use it. Um, and it's a piece of her testimony. She said this. She said, I spent years, decades really, trying to understand how God could allow me to be abused by a man from the time I was six years old till I was 11 years old. She said, it wasn't until I spent time in his word and read Deuteronomy 31.6, which says, be strong, do not fear. For the Lord your God, he's the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. It showed me that he had been with me just as he had been with Jesus. He showed me that allowing his son to be crucified did not mean that he didn't love his son. I realized that he had always been with me and that he loved me as well. When God asked me to forgive this man, I again relied on his word. It was hard to do, you think? She says it was hard to do, but he helped me see that not doing this step was hurting me and preventing me from moving forward. And so with much prayer, the wall of hatred started to give way to a new hope until one day I realized I'd forgiven him. She said, on that day, God allowed me to see this man as his creation. And should I see him in heaven, I will rejoice. Well, that, that's a work that God does. What Satan intended for evil, God works together for good. It's funny. Um, uh, Liz sent uh, this text uh, to, to, uh, to my wife um, right after she sent that. She said... Um, uh, as a commentary of the email she just sent. She said, it's, this, this started when I realized I couldn't do it with my self-help books, and I asked the pastors at Reliance for help. Do you remember that? She's asking my wife. She said, from there, the women's Bible studies and the home Bible studies helped me so much. They not only saved my life, but they saved my marriage. <laughs> she says, I should be the poster child for the Reliance Bible studies. <laughs> God bless you, Liz. Listen, let me ask you a question in regards to betrayal. I asked you guys for a show of hands, and some of you today, and I want to acknowledge, betrayal hurts. I know it. I've been through it. You're going through it. And I, want, I want, just want to ask you, listen, who's betrayed you? Because, because betrayal teaches us not only to trust in God and primarily to trust in God, but it also teaches us another very valuable lesson 
not to have misplaced trust in man. It's not that we should be distrustful, but, but we, ha- we can have a tendency to elevate people to God's status in our lives. Um, and what happens, you know, it's, it's been said that even good things can become idols when we allow a good thing to become a God thing. And, uh, and sometimes we go through these conflicts or whatever, and really the process is just something God allows because he's, he's telling us, you know, that person has become an idol to you. My wife, one of the, one of the most painful things that I, that I ever went through with my wife was her revelation that, uh, you know, when she got married, she, she told me, you know, I thought you were perfect, which that wasn't painful. I thought that was cool. Um, the painful part is that when she realized that, that it's not true, and of course it's not true. But basically, she had elevated and placed all her hope in me, and, and I let her down. Um, and, and it was God teaching her, he's not God. I'm God, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, your spouse is not your savior. Jesus is. Your friends and your family, they are not your savior. Jesus is your savior. And some of us today, we've got wounds on our back. We've been betrayed. We've been stabbed in the back. But in your betrayal, I want you to remember two things. Number one, I want you to remember that God is working. And in that working, he knows your pain because he's been through it. And secondly, I want you to remember that you're a betrayer too. And so am I. Charles Finney said this. He said, it's a simple thing to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's quite another thing to say that Jesus died for my sins. It's a shocking thought that we can be as indifferent as Pilate, who washed his hands of Jesus, as scheming as Caiaphas, who missed Jesus in his religion, as callous as the soldiers who beat Jesus, as ruthless as the mob who called for the death of Jesus, or as cowardly as the disciples who ran away from Jesus. It wasn't just them. It was I who nailed Jesus to the tree. So the first sinner we see here in our text uh, is Judas who betrayed uh, Jesus. Secondly, we see these religious leaders who rejected Jesus. Like I said, I'm I'm just going to barely touch on this because we're going to dig into this next week. But we see Judas leading this multitude in verse 47. Right, the religious leaders who rejected Jesus. And 50, verse 52 identifies who they were. It tells us that it's the chief priests, that it's the captains of the temple, and that it's the elders. Now, of all the people that should have recognized their Messiah, it should be them. But like Judas, they've got a belief problem. right? And so verse 54 says, Having arrested him, they led him, and they brought him into the high priest's house. And it says there then that Peter followed at a, at a distance. Now, this arrest was the beginning, the leading into Herod's, uh, or the high priest's house. Um, that This was um, the first of six trials um, that Jesus is going to face over the next several hours. Highly illegal. Um, they're having this trial because they want something on Jesus. They want to they, they use something against Jesus. Uh, something we're going to also dig into more next week is that the, uh, the fact that the, the Jews at this time, because Rome had taken over, they had lost their right to exercise capital punishment. So they got to get something on, G- on Jesus that Rome will buy off on so that Rome will pass the sentence of, of execution. And so this is, this is what's going on here is they're trying to get some dirt on Jesus and come up with some false Accusers. Now, we're going to focus on that next week, but as Jesus' trial is taking place here, it begins by telling us what's going on inside. They brought Jesus to the high priest's house, but now the attention focuses, it shifts focus for the next several verses 
to what's going on outside the house. And it says there that Peter followed at a distance. Now, let, let's just read the, the, the whole account. So here's Peter following at a distance. And now, <clears throat> verse 55, when, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Who's the them? Well, it, it's, it's entirely likely, and, and in fact, beyond that, it's, it's, almost, it's almost certainty. It's, almost a, a, it's certainly a strong possibility that Peter, when he sat down among them, this is the them, the group of people that had just been among, among the mob that went to the Garden of Gethsemane to drag Jesus out to put Jesus to death. This is who Peter's sitting with. So they sat down together. Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him, as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him, and she said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, he denied Jesus to her, saying, um, sorry, uh, where did, good grief. But he denied him, thank you, 57, denied him, saying, <laughs> all right, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow was also with him, for he's a Galilean. I recognize your accent a mile away. You were for sure with him. But, verse 60, Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. <coughs> and other gospels tell us that, what he's doing at this point is he's, he's not just saying, man, I don't know what you're saying. He's cursing. He, he's, he's, he, is, he is swearing oaths. He's saying, I swear to God, I don't know him. And, he, and he's, you know, using profanity as he's talking. I do not know him. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now the text tells us here, begins off by saying that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Now, to Peter's credit, he's, he's one of only two of the 12 disciples who's following Jesus at this point. The other nine remaining disciples have scattered. It's really just Peter and John at this point who are following. But I want you to take note that Peter is following at a distance. The sifting in Peter's life has begun. Now, we're going to dig into, and I want you to see a pattern here because the pattern of what Peter does in his behavior is, is a pattern that the Bible warns against. Let's start with a warning. Um, up on the screen, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, tells us this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, here's the promise. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, it tells us about those that don't follow that path. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind blows away. What did Satan want to do to Peter? He wanted to sift him. And what's the process of sifting? It's crushing and part of that crushing is blowing away the chaff, which is worthless. Satan wants to blow Peter completely away, thinks he's entirely chaff. So notice this progression that the psalmist says. The psalmist says, a righteous man does not walk 
in ungodliness, does not stand in the path of sinners, does not, thirdly, sit in the seat of the scornful. But he says the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. In other words, the ungodly walk in ungodliness, and before you know it, they're standing in the paths of sinners, and eventually they're sitting in the seat of the scornful, and then the only thing that's left is their life becomes chaff. This is what Satan wants for Peter, right? And what he's trying to do. Now, Peter, he confidently swore. He said, Jesus, even, and he said it just like a couple hours before this. Even if all these losers do deny you, I'm never going to deny you. I'm willing to go to death, right? And here within the span of a couple of hours, he's following this ungodly path of Psalm 1. He's following Jesus at a distance, He's standing in the company of the enemies of Christ, and before you know it, he finishes up sitting down amongst them, warming himself at the enemy's fire. And again, listen, there's just a progression to it. There's a progression to it. And I want you guys to understand, this is the same progression that Satan wants for you and me, right? You and I, daily, we face an unholy trinity of, of temptation to sin, of temptation to stray off the path and rather, you know, walking, right, not in the counsel of the ungodly or standing, you know, in the paths of sinners or sitting at the seat of the scornful, right? The, we daily are called to a narrow path of seeking the Lord, but we face this unholy trinity, the unholy trinity of your sinful flesh being one, the unholy trinity of this sinful world, being another, the unholy trinity, thirdly, of the demonic realm. And all of these, your sinful flesh, the sinful world, and the demonic realm, their number one objective is to get you to leave the path, right? The narrow path that God would have you to walk in. And and so this is this ongoing full court press that Satan wants you to do. And yielding to these temptations typically follows that pattern. We spend less and less time with Jesus and we spend more and more time in the world. And as we distance ourselves from Jesus and the distance between us grows wider and wider, our proximity to the world grows closer and closer. Now, here's what that looks like in your life because it's not so obvious as you might think. It is a gradual process What happens, it's not that you just suddenly stop going to church and that you suddenly cold cold turkey stop being a Christian. What happens is that there is a subtle drifting that takes place in your life. You remember as a kid, you know, if you grew up at the beach, you'd go swimming, right? And then you'd come back out and you could swear somebody stole all your stuff, but nobody stole your stuff. You just drifted down the path, right? Before you know it, you wake up, you're like, hey, this... Nothing looks familiar. That's the way it is in our life. We drift, right? And so you have this this thing where more and more things, just this gradual process begins to just distance you from the Lord. And I don't want to be legalistic about this. I just want to be realistic about this to, to say, look, there was a point in our life, Christian, when we said, I want to know you, God. I want to know you better. God, I want to grow in you. And so we began to develop these habits to grow closer to the Lord, to know him better. And before you know it, we we look in the rearview mirror of our life and we're like, 
man, I'm so great. I'm not even, a, I, I don't even resemble who I used to be. Thank you, Jesus. I, got, I get different habits. I got different friends. I got different behavioral practices. And, and my life is better for it. Now, how many of you have experienced that? Just so I know I'm talking to the right group of people. Thank you, Jesus. Right? But what happens when you drift is that all of a sudden, your life is not being shaped by how close can I get to the Lord? Now you start asking questions of, can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I drink? Can I, can I smoke weed? It's legal now in California. Can I do that? You know, and it might not be that extreme, but so, <laughs> nothing shocks me anymore, okay? But, it, but it's how close can I get to the edge and still be a Christian? No, 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 no. That's a leaving the path kind of dialogue. It's how close can I get to Jesus? And, and we, we need to, to, to be aware of this because it's subtle and it's this gradual drag of shifting. And notice in Peter's life, in his three denials, each denial is more extreme. Starts with a simple denial. This chick, little gal, you know, she's like, hey, you know, I saw you, you were one of them. He's like, no, 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 I wasn't with him. And then it gets a little bit stronger. And then finally, he is cursing and he's taking oaths. He's like, I, I, just never, I just never knew him, you know. You know it's bad, by the way, when the world has to remind you that you're a Christian. Right? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Aren't you a Christian? <laughs> you're like, no, you know, kind of thing. Or you're just totally busted, right? And so, so this is the pattern. So uh, this is what Peter does. And immediately, the rooster crows. Verse 60, the rooster crows of 61, uh, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Now, the Lord looking at Peter here, it's a very interesting word. It's the same word that John uses in his gospel when Peter came to saving faith in Jesus. Andrew, his brother, had met Jesus the day before. He came home. He told Peter, dude, you got to come meet this guy. And so he takes him to see Jesus. And uh, John 1.42, it says, he brought him to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, same word, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. That word looked, it's not like, you know, a glance. It's not like, hey, Dave, I'm looking at you kind of thing. It's uh, Jesus looked into his soul. And this is exactly now what happens. Peter has denied the Lord three times. Jesus told him that it was gonna go down. And now the Lord turned And he looked at Peter. He looked into his soul. And I don't know exactly where Jesus is. Nobody knows for sure. We know that he's on trial in the house. Peter's in the courtyard. And whether they're looking through a window or an open door or they're moving Jesus from one place in the house to another, whatever the case is, now they're eyeball to eyeball. And Jesus looks into Peter's soul. And at that moment, it says, Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times times. Here's the thing. Jesus's look in Peter and looking into his soul, it wasn't a, hey, you're dead to me. It wasn't a, hey, you've denied me three times, so drop dead and, and see you in hell, buddy. It was, it was, he had already told him, dude, I prayed for you and you're going to deny me three times, but, but when you've returned, strengthen your brethren. Hey, listen, there's redemption for you. This is the work that Jesus did in that garden. He took the cup of wrath. And it's for all who place their faith in him. It's not that you're not going to sin. It's not that you're not going to have times in your life that you deny the Lord. It's whether or not he is your Lord or he's just some genie in a bottle. 
right? And so what happens is the moment Jesus looks into his soul, the moment that, that there is that reminder of, hey, buddy, drifting a little bit, all of a sudden he remembers the word of the Lord. Guys, Jesus or Peter was off track. And, and what happened? I've drifted. I got to reorient my life. It's the looking at the compass. The word of the Lord is his compass. He remembered what Jesus said. And so verse 62 says, he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, it's important for us to know what's going on here because what we see in Peter's tears, they're tears of brokenness. And that's, that's really good. Sometimes people who have, you know, have sinned, they regret the consequences of their sin, but there's really no true remorse and repentance in their tears. That's not what's going on here. This is, this is for, for Peter, well, let me describe it this way. Uh, David, King David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote this in Psalm 51 as he came back to the Lord. He said, the sacrifices, Psalm 51 verse 17, of God, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Here's what David's saying. He's saying, look, I sinned and God's not looking for some religious ritual from me to, to you know, I'm going to say ten Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and, and you know, and then I, I'm going to be good with God. God's not pleased with, with religious ritual. He says, what God is pleased with is a broken and a contrite heart, and he won't despise that. And so, so when we mourn over our sin, when we come to God, if we have sinned, if we have betrayed him, and, and all, then if we denied him, we can come to the Lord and say, with a broken heart, have mercy on me, and God will meet you in that place, and he will have mercy on you. And we see this in the Bible. We'll see it in John chapter 21, when Jesus restores Peter. Right? And so Jesus, Peter goes away, he weeps, weeps bitterly. But they're, 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 they're tears of remorse, but they're also tears of repentance, of turning back to the Lord. He remembered the word of the Lord, to turn back to the Lord, and he will find that forgiveness. Well, we're going we're gonna to finish up there. We'll pick it up next week. I want to close with several questions for you. As always, we'll put them up on the screen. We'll leave them up on the screen at the end of the service today. And I, I want you to take a walk with these prayerfully this week. Maybe discuss them in your community groups First question, what is your belief system? Is the God you worship the God of the Bible? Second question, are you suffering from a betrayal today? And if so, are are you willing to turn your betrayer over to the Lord? Knowing that he understands the pain of betrayal. Trusting that God is going to use this to focus your trust upon him and not man. And are you willing to forgive your betrayer. Third question, what's the progression of your walk with Jesus? What's your path look like? Are you growing closer to Jesus or are you drifting and growing closer to the world?